Blog Talk Radio. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network, sponsored by Sunbury Press, the publisher of paperback, hardcover, and electronic books in a variety of categories distributed worldwide wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Lawrence Knorr, and the topic for this show is Keeping the Lights on for Ike by author Rebecca Daniels. Most people don't realize that during the war in Europe in the 1940s, it took an average of six support soldiers to make the work of four combat soldiers possible. Most of what's available in the literature tends toward combat narratives, and yet the support soldiers had complex and unique experiences as well. This book is based on personal correspondence, and it's primarily a memoir that creates a picture of the day-to-day realities of an individual soldier told in his own words, as much as he could tell under the wartime rules of censorship, that is, as well as giving insight into what it was actually like to be an American soldier during World War II. It explores the experience of a non-combat Army utilities engineer working in a combat zone during the war in Europe and takes the protagonist from basic training through various overseas assignments, in this case to England, North Africa, and Italy as a support soldier under Eisenhower and his successors at Allied Force Headquarters. It also includes some reflections about his life after returning to Oregon when the war was over. The soldier involved is Captain Harold Alec Daniels, an Oregon State University grad from 1939, and most of his letters were written to his wife, Mary Daniels, who attended University of Oregon in the late 30s. They were the author's parents, and she inherited this wonderful letter collection, photos, and all other primary source materials. The author, Rebecca Daniels, has been a university professor for many years, and she's also simultaneously had a vital creative career in the theater. We welcome Rebecca today. Rebecca, very interesting Hello. book about your parents. Good to have you. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. So my first question about the letter collection and photos, was this something you knew about as a kid, that it was there all this time, or is it something you discovered later? I'm, I'm not sure I knew much about it when I was a kid, but I certainly knew about it as a young adult. Um, that was the point. My father died when I was 23, And by the time I was in my late 20s and early 30s, my mom was sharing bits of those letters here and there. And um, the images that accompany the book, I knew about those because whenever I would go home from wherever I was living after I left college, um, we would often look at the old slides. And these Mm. images were more or less all slides that my father had taken and my mom had preserved, and we only hauled them out maybe once a year and looked at them. So I knew that there was stuff. I just didn't know how much or how rich that stuff was going to be. So I I remember finding in the attic of my old house as a kid uh, a box of old letters, and it had all those old postage stamps on it and the old 
postmarks. At the time, I was a stamp collector and a coin collector, so finding the old letters with the stamps was a lot of fun. But I guess I well, was never so was. interested in the content. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, interestingly, cool. yeah, I first thought, because I was a theater person by training, and that's what I was doing at the time, <clears throat> I initially thought, I'll make a play out of this. But then I started to read and transcribe those letters, which was a long, long process because my father's handwriting was dreadful, and it was very slow going to interpret the letters. But it turned out to be much too nuanced and subtle. There was no forward dramatic action that would make a good play. So I thought, well, this has to be a book. And that's how it turned out. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. Uh, I know they were challenged by being half a world apart, and that must have been very difficult. If you could give us a sense of what their relationship was like during that time and the troubles or difficulties they went through. Well, the the primary difficulty was, in fact, the separation because they were relatively newly married. They married in um, 39, and they were in Bremerton prior to the war, and then he was called up because he was ROTC in college. Um, and in, in 42, he was on his way to basic training, and so they had only had a couple of years as a married couple. And they were happily married. They were deeply in love. And she tried to categorize him as her hero, but she was also completely freaked out that he was going to be gone. And she did her best to follow him absolutely as far as she could. She was told not to go to Missouri with him for basic training. She went anyway. And they, she found a number of other army wives that were in the same situation. And she went to New York before he was sent overseas. And I think if she could have figured out how to do it, she would have gone to Europe with him um, if she could have figured out how to get away with it. Um, they right. were um, struggling. to. They were trying to have kids. She wasn't pregnant when he left. And, in fact, that becomes something that challenged them over the long haul was having their own kids because I'm an adopted child. But so the letters became this really tender love story. And I'm sure that um, one of the issues that I cover in the early part of the book is that something that would drive those of us who are used to being able to text or email people and get an immediate response they didn't hear from each other for weeks and weeks and even into months because the Army mail service was so chaotic and the soldiers were on the move so their correspondence could get home, but they couldn't get anything from home for a very long time till the Army post office got their um, act together. Yeah. So it put, the, put pressure on the relationship, but on the other hand, it intensified their feelings for each other because they were yearning sure. across that great distance. Absent makes the heart grow fonder. Huh? Wait, so yeah, I'm, and it I'm certainly worked at this point. <laughs> I'm guessing that it probably was a lot of one-sided conversations, and you know, maybe, um, maybe with Harold sending letters as he was able, and then if he got one, he could answer it, or vice versa. 
But right, that was right. And, yeah. yeah, and though his legal name was Harold, he went by Alec. So that's how I refer to him in the book. Everybody okay. called him Alec because he didn't like Harold. That was his father's name, and he wanted to be somebody different. But um, you can, I can see as I read a sequence of letters, and I try to bring out in the book where there's evidence of conversation. But it takes many, many months before there's a true sense of reciprocity in the correspondence because of the fact that he was on the move, he started in England, went to North Africa, and ultimately ended in Italy. And so um, the conversations were truncated, or he would refer back to, you must be you know, hearing this by now. Uh, that was the other thing, is that he wasn't able to talk about what he was doing or even where he was going. So at some level, she, she knew he was going overseas, and she probably had an inkling that he was going first to England because that's where many of the soldiers went to be deployed elsewhere in Europe. But after that, she didn't know anything. And every now and then they'll be in a letter, you must have figured out by now I'm in XYZ or whatever place. But um, there was no instant communication. So that put a lot of strain on it. And, <clears throat> yeah, there was a conversation. But if you could imagine having to wait a week or two or three for an answer to a particular question, um, you know, in our contemporary world, we just don't have that kind of patience. I'd be waiting for the mailman to come up the walk every day or run I'm down pretty to the sure post Mary office. was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get to be good, very, very good friends with the mailman. In fact, uh, Yes, and it's pretty clear. Hey, you got a letter from today. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. and it's pretty clear that they tried to write daily, though eventually it kind of uh, becomes clear that he's unable to do so because he's working so many hours and he gets tired. So some letters will span several days, but I'm sure she wrote to him every single day. In fact, he didn't carry her letters when he moved around because there were too many of them. He had to (laughs) leave them in the trash whenever he moved. Uh, And she was a prolific writer. I I know that. (laughs) So the first step, just going from New York to uh, probably to Liverpool or um, not sure where they, where they came in in England, but very, uh, very, uh, treacherous trip across the North Atlantic with U-boats about, and they're probably in a convoy. I'm sure there was some yep. trepidation about him making it there. And, and the same when going to North Africa, it's not like they uh, just hopped on a jet and were there in an hour or two. They probably went on right. ships again. So any, anything yep. with uh, those, those adventures on the, you know, on the sea, anything you mentioned about that? <clears throat> There would be a gap in the correspondence, and then he would say, I'm in a new place now, and would talk about the crossing. And I was able uh-huh. to put together, <clears throat> again, he was, uh, it was further complicated by the fact that he was the company censor. So not only uh-huh. was he 
under censorship, he was the one in charge of making sure it was done right. And he was very much um, a stickler for the rules because he had to be. He was the officer in charge of that. So he tried to make it as humorous as possible. And as soon as anything hit the American newspapers, he was able to write about it. But before that, he absolutely couldn't. So he, it turns out he was in the second wave of soldiers to go to North Africa. The first wave was the combat mission that actually gave the Allies North Africa, took it away from the Germans for the start of that mission because he was there for the tail end of it. Um, but the uh, various invasions and there's some ocean battles and invasions of coastal towns. Algiers fell pretty quickly to the Allies, and they made their headquarters there. But it took a mm-hmm. while to get Rommel to leave the desert territory and to feel like they had taken all of North Africa and could make the next move toward Europe. But I think that was Montgomery, the British general, who was actually the, the Allied commander of the combat troops at least uh, from what I can recall, and I know that Patton... I think Montgomery and uh, Patton was involved, but um, and Eisenhower was still in active um, duty at Allied Force Mm -hmm. Headquarters in Algiers. He wasn't pulled until later to go to London to plan the Normandy invasion. Right. So tell us a little bit about what your father was up to that you could tell as far as being an engineer and keeping the lights on? Yes. Well, he was an electrical engineer by training. And as a utilities engineer, he also ended up with all sorts of other responsibilities. I think he ended up getting involved with plumbing and with mechanical and some things like that. But the electrics were his primary focus, and hence the title of the book. And that's what my mother always used to say his job was, keeping the lights on for Ike. So I adopted that phrase for the book title. But he had to deal with power surges, power outages. And in the creation of Allied Force Headquarters in Algiers, it became a huge, it was supposed to be kind of this lean and mean operation, And it ended up becoming a huge thing. So if you can imagine, it wasn't just changing light bulbs. It was like when a fixture blew or when a circuit breaker popped or, you know, when there was was a transformer problem. That was his main job. He had a crew of engineers working with him. And I think it was probably a little less harrowing when he was in North Africa because the the um, Nazis hadn't done as much damage in Algiers as they did in Naples and at Caserta, once because once the Allies took Italy, the Germans literally wrecked all the infrastructure they could on their exit mm-hmm. from the place. So he'd come into so town. So he was saying Algiers and would attempt to reinvigorate the existing infrastructure, utilize that as much as possible? Yes, yes. And in Italy, that also meant rebuilding a whole lot. 
mm-hmm. because of the, the the willful destruction by the Nazis that hadn't happened as much in North Africa. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the uh the trip over to Italy then is probably uh another completely different experience. Having been to Italy, beautiful country. Uh I can't imagine uh it being war torn though, but uh, I know that it was along the Amalfi Coast um, that a lot of the troops came ashore. There was also, you know, up through Sicily. Um, yeah, the, the first invasion was up through Sicily, and then they came ashore as much as they could as they drove the Nazis north and eastward out of the country. But the Nazis didn't go quietly. They they no. kind of went. They went relatively quietly in Africa compared to what happened in Italy, because the, in Italy they they gave. I mean, I think North Africa gave the Allies the idea that it was going to be easy in Italy, and it turned out to be exactly the opposite of easy. They the Nazis just made everything as difficult as they possibly could, and so there were water systems blown up, electrics torn down. Um, you know, they just, the utilities engineers really just had to start over to make things work in some cases. Yeah. yeah. So where, what towns in Italy did he write about? Were there any particular spots that he mentioned or was that all censored out of the, out of the uh, No, he Are was, you able he to went, piece together? I was able to piece together. He was first in Naples when the Allies took Naples, and then he was at Caserta Palace, which is outside of Naples, which is where they ultimately moved um, AFHQ when they decided to transfer it from Algiers to Italy. And so they took over the palace. And the palace also became, I mean, the Caserta Palace is... is um, a remarkable place and it's it's design is is not um not dissimilar to a place like versailles i mean it's huge 18th century structure that has elaborate gardens and grounds and tons of rooms so it made a, you know a good office building if you will even though it was full of all this fabulous art and amazing architecture and I have some photos in the book of the GIs le- literally lounging in some of these 18th century fountains when they're having some R&R time between battles or waiting to where they're going to be sent next. So it was, it was both um, a place for soldiers to recreate between assignments, but also a place where the administrative structure of the army was working. So, in a sense, he's behind the lines because they're they're several miles away, or many miles away yeah. at that point. Does that mean it, it's pretty much secured and it's safe for him to go out in the town and socialize uh, at the tavern, or is he pretty much stuck at the castle? You know, at, no, at, it's uh, actually relatively safe in the town. Um, and there was one time he was out in. Uh, and I'm not going to remember whether this was in North Africa or Italy, but he was out in a Jeep with a colleague looking into something that he couldn't talk about. 
and realized they were across the line into the combat zone. Because (laughs) those are kind of arbitrary, you know, probably depending on the day and the battle, things are always on the move in a war like that, so much of it on the ground. That um, So he was right next to the combat zone, and this would have been where the um, wounded soldiers were brought to the hospitals, too, because right. that would have, that would have been the, the fallback position. So Naples and Caserta, which was very close by, really sort of became the place to go when you weren't engaged in the fighting, but gotcha. it was right next to the fighting. Did he bring any mementos back from North Africa or Italy, anything uh, anything from the war zone? He did bring some uh, really interesting things. There's one thing that um, that looks like it was made from an artillery shell that my mother used for a vase. He brought her some silver jewelry from North Africa. He went at near the end of the war, he went to Switzerland, and he brought her a miniature chalet-style jewelry box with a little pressed Edelweiss inside, which I still have. My brother has the vase, and I have the jewelry. But so mom just wore those like they were, you know, the her regular jewelry. She loved them, and... Uh, but I never knew the stories until I read the letters and realized what was yeah. um, what the significance of those things were. When I was a kid, that little chalet box was just kind of a cool thing that sat on my mom's dresser. Yeah, what a story it had. So yeah, really. All right, so he he his tour ends in '45. Yes. Or thereabouts, and uh, yes. he comes home. I, I'm guessing <clears throat> to New York and then. Uh, is she in New then York? They put him on a train. No, yeah. they they told he wasn't able to give her much information. Of, several times he thought he was coming home, and then they delayed it. There were a lot of uh. delays toward the end of the war, um, so it was several months after the war was officially over that he finally was sent home. Part of it might have been dismantling AFHQ. Um, who knows what else, but so he would send telegrams and the letter collection gets very sparse at this point because they were springing for a very expensive transatlantic phone call now and then and getting very excited about him coming home. So there would be this telegram that would say, I'm leaving on the, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm in New York, I'm leaving on a train I should be in Tacoma, which he was um, discharged at Fort Lewis in Washington. And um, so she probably just took off and went up to Fort Lewis and waited for that train. Yeah. Wow. Imagine that. You know, and again, without the daily conversations, without the ability, I mean, they could send telegrams and they could make phone calls, which were still quite expensive in the late yeah. in the mid 40s so so yeah how long she were had they to apart have, they were apart three um three years 42 to 45 wow. almost exactly three years wow so now back in oregon he's a veteran 
they're reunited. Tell us a little bit about life after the war. Well, I know much less about that because they didn't write each other letters because they were together. <laughs> but um, yeah. I can, I have been able to figure out that, well, first let me say, though they started the war in Bremerton, where he was working at the shipyards as an engineer, they, at the end of the war, they did not return to Bremerton because they were both native Oregonians. And she'd been staying in Portland with her parents during the war while he was away. So they came back to Portland, where they were both from, and they... I'm not sure what they did during the from 45 to about 48. I think he worked for an electric company for a while, but he was um, probably underemployed. But in uh, 48, I think it was, or maybe 47, he was offered a job in um, Oregon City, Oregon, at the Crown Zellerback paper plant as a plant electrical engineer a job he took in the late 40s, and in spite of all of his youthful idealism about all the travel they were going to do and he was never going to settle down into a single job or anything like that, he worked at that job until his death. So oh. he he came back. At, well, the, the first thing they actually did is they went to Mexico for a vacation, and then they came back and settled in Portland, and then he got this job eventually, and so they moved out into the southwest suburbs of Portland, um, where I was raised, and he stayed at Crown until his death. And he passed in the and 70s? Yes, he passed in 72. He was uh, two weeks past his 57th birthday when he oh, died. Wow. young man. And like a many, a many in his generation didn't live to see 60. And um, there are those that would blame the war and the stress of the war on their ill health. And I don't know that anybody's actually ever explained it, but, you know, we didn't live as long back in that day. But he had a number of medical complications, which started to become evident during the war, though they weren't fully diagnosed until he came home. He had rheumatoid arthritis, which made everything else that ever happened to him uh, difficult because it was an immune system disorder. Now, your uh, your mother lived for many more years. Yes, she did. Like... She was almost 92 when she died. And, um, wow. But the other thing that they did when they got when the war was over is they tried to make babies. I mean, there was reference in the letters to the brats they wanted to have, and that he would say after the war there'll be plenty of time to make lots of brats, which was of course the army term for children. He wasn't being pejorative in that way, um, and so. Eventually, they had to admit that, that it wasn't working for them, probably in large part due to his health issues, but nobody ever, they never analyzed why. And so in the late 40s, they started to explore adoption. My brother and I are both adopted. And okay. um, prior to the war, 
my uh, parents' neighbors and best friends had been this couple, the Creelmans, and the Roy, Ray, Ray was a doctor. And by the time the war ended and the 40s had advanced, he was the head of obstetrics at the hospital in Bremerton. So he arranged to have them be in line for any babies born that the mothers weren't able to keep. Well, so this was, Rebecca, we have, <laughs> we're just about out of time, unfortunately. Oh. But I know you're about to tell us that's how you pop into the story And uh, at that point. Uh, what are you working on now? Just, just well, my next. Well, I've already said I'm adopted, and my next project is that, in the last um, four years, through DNA testing, I have been able to um, find and meet my birth mother and identify my birth father, who is long dead, and wow. a number of other biological relatives. So I'm writing about that next. I look forward to seeing that. We've been talking to Rebecca Daniels, Keeping the Lights On for Ike. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.